Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey everyone, welcome to the show today. This week I'm talking with Corey Hicks from Visible Music College. Corey is the head of both the music theory and guitar divisions globally at Visible Music College, one of the premier Christian institutions of higher learning in the country. In addition to being a professor and guitar teacher, Corey spent years playing in the house band at Billy Bob's Texas, aka the world's largest honky-tonk, and has opened for Willie Nelson, REO Speedwagon, Dwight Yoakam, John Fogarty, and dozens of other amazing big artists. We are discussing what it's like to teach 70 guitar students a week, the difficulty of auditioning for large-scale music venues as a house band musician, and learning to love the process of practicing on a regular basis. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Get your pen and paper and get ready to take lots of great notes. Hey, everyone. I am talking with Corey Hicks from Visible Music College in, well, Visible is based in Memphis, Tennessee, the initial uh, location, campus of Visible Music College. But they've got a, a couple of campuses around around the country, one up in Chicago area. And then, you, Corey, you're in Texas, right? Yeah, we're in McKinney, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. A suburb of Dallas. And that's where uh, your campus is located, of Visible Music College. And so for people who don't know what Visible Music College is, it is a, basically, it's a worship music college. It's a Christian music-based college that you go and learn how to become a worship leader and engineer and all kinds of stuff. So we'll let you talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. But the reason that you and I are getting to have this conversation together is because of a, a good friend of ours, mutual friend. She is my little sister. I call her my little sister. Her name is Heather Isaac, and she is one of the vice presidents of Visible. And um, I was telling you just briefly before we started recording that Heather and I have known each other for about 22 years as of the time of this recording. And um, so she's like a little sister to me. I lived with her family out in North Carolina for a time years ago. And um, they just became dear friends of mine. And so I love them to death. And I reached out to her about being on the podcast and she's like, actually, you need to talk to Corey because he's going to be an amazing guest. And I was like, absolutely. Let's do this. So here we are. And thank you for being on the show and to talk about um, what you do in the music business and when you do a lot of different stuff and really cool thing that I'm excited to talk about is is what you do with Visible, because it's a different perspective that I haven't had a conversation with someone about yet, um, kind of on the teaching professor side of things in, in music, and then also just kind of all the stuff that you do. So um, let's just jump in. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and what got you into 
um, got you started in music. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I'm Corey Hicks, and I live in McKinney, Texas, with my beautiful wife and seven children. And seven children. Seven children. Holy cow! Uh, so, Congratulations yeah. and and bless you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're wonderful. Um, so. <laughs> Um, my father was a guitarist. Uh, he actually played in a 60s band called The Leftovers, and uh, he became an engineer uh, and worked uh, for Sperry and Honeywell doing all sorts of things for uh, aircraft and defense systems and stuff. Wow. So uh, guitar kind of was on the back burner for him. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember very vividly at uh, age 10, my dad wanted to take me to a music store. Yeah. And uh, he was going to get for his birthday a brand new Gibson Les Paul. And uh, so, you know, I went along with him and um, he just kind of got back into music. And it was kind of my first experience with um, just the guitar and I thought it looked cool and everything. So um, while I kind of started playing around 10, I didn't take it really seriously for the next couple of years. Um, but uh, throughout high school, I kind of got really into it and spent a lot of time practicing and had a a band that started playing around our little town in Minnesota. And uh, it was a really good time because there was, you know, a whole lot of places to play around there, uh, mostly little tiny bars and stuff like that. But um, anyway, so as I'm getting a little bit older, I start thinking about maybe doing this as a career. Um, and then for, I think it was my 18th birthday, my mom and dad got me a uh, special birthday present. It was uh, the guitar sessions at Berkeley College of Music. So it's like a week or two where you get to go out to Berkeley in Boston and you get to kind of experience how, you know, how it would be to be a music student there. Yeah, that's cool. And so I went out there and, uh, you know, kind of figured that um, if I had to go to college, I was going to do it for music. Um, and so I worked towards, you know, applying to Berkeley and uh, got in and spent uh, my first uh, two years of college there. And um, that's where I first started getting um, a lot of experience with these really passionate musicians. We're talking people that practice eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, we're talking people that, you know, know how to play multiple genres of music, uh, people that are, you know, gigging all the time. And uh, it really kind of showed me what it's like to, you know, be at the top of your game. And so I was yeah. really inspired by that. Um, and so that's actually one of the first times where I really got into the idea of like, I wanted to teach as well. So, um, you know, I was very impressed by my professors and their resumes and what they were able to do. Um, but, um, my mom kind of got sick. And so I ended up moving back to Minnesota at that time and, uh, kind of helping out with the family and stuff. And so, um, while I didn't graduate from Berkeley, I had my first two years there and uh, started trying to make ends meet in Minnesota. And what happened there was, you know, I started getting a job at like Guitar Center because I was like, I want to be around music. And right. then I met someone there that was a teacher at a small studio. And it just so happens that um, one of the teachers there was moving on. And so I was gifted with 40 students a week right away. Wow, that's nice. And, uh, so <laughs> that along with, you know, little gigs that I was able to pick up, uh, started, you know, being this thing where I was like, well, I could probably actually make this work. Um, so that was what I did for, you know, the first couple, two years back in, in Minnesota, uh, basically teaching, you know, 40 students a week, um, that got as much as 70 a week. So 70 half hour lessons a week. 
That's a lot. I, I used to teach 35 a week when I first started my teaching business, and that's a lot. You know, so I can't I can't imagine doing seventy a week. That that's a lot. Yeah, and uh, so you know, my my main passion uh, in music is usually roots based music. So we're talking, you know, blues and jazz and funk, uh, old rock and roll, classic rock, yeah. um, you know, country that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I had started a band around that time um, that basically played a lot of the the blues venues around mm-hmm. town. And uh, while that kind of music is fun to play it doesn't really make a lot of money, yeah. you know? So, so, um, it, why is that? Why would you say that is? Uh, well, um, like just playing in, in local venues. Is that what you mean? Or playing that specific type of style I, of it's music? It's kind of that specific type of music. I mean, so for example, what I do now, uh, playing country for a living, um, it's like, the perfect storm of a lot of different elements. First of all, most of the songs are about the thing that people come to the venue for. So, right. you know, purchasing alcohol, dancing, all that type of stuff. Um, when the songs are actually about the thing you're doing, um, it kind of goes hand in hand in, in selling this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the, the blues thing is, is kind of cool. Cause I was really into guitar and stuff like that. And, uh, improvisation is probably one of my favorite things. Um, but me and my roommate at the time, he was also uh, from Berkeley. Um, I remember at one point uh, we had just finished paying rent and I had like 20 bucks left in my account and he had like 40 left in his account. And uh, classic. You know, and, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Poster child for, for, for this. <laughs> right. Yeah. So listen so up, I, everyone. <laughs> so we're out. So we're at you know our apartment complex and we went out to the pool and we're like, what are we going to do? And then um, we talked about it for a while. And then we're like, you know, what? we're just going to have to get day jobs. And so um, we both got day jobs for a little bit. I actually ended up working at um, a well-known uh, Czech company uh, actually doing sales in a cubicle. Wait, so uh, this is a separate location. This is, are you done teaching at this point, I'm assuming? I still yeah. am, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't enough to make, make ends meet, really. 70 um, students? 70 students because, you know, my... You know, my loans from Berkeley were one hundred and forty-four thousand. Oh, okay, there you go. That makes sense. All right. So see. we're talking you know, like twelve hundred and twenty-two dollars a month was my student loans. I got you. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I start working at this place, and that's where I actually met my wife. So it was kind of a god thing there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I worked there for about six months until I got to a point where I could quit and then go back to playing music. But I remember this, and I tell students this all the time: um, you have to do things musically like commercial music and stuff to make ends meet you can't just do your own thing you can't just try to be a superstar or famous because uh in order to support that career you're going to have to do something during the day and you know my schedule when i was working there was insane i would get up at 5 a.m i would practice for two hours i would work 8 30 to 5 my first lesson was at 5 30 i would teach until about nine o'clock and then I would practice from about 9.30 to midnight and then get up at 5 again. Wow. Um, because, you know, and I've, I've been an avid practicer my whole life. I mean, when I was at Berkeley, it was 10 to 12 hours a day. And, you know, I always used to think that three hours is just a warm-up. Um, so you have so much, uh, you know, e- exhaustion from, from the schedule. And, you know, what I usually tell students is, look, you don't want to go through that. Do everything you can to make sure that your music career actually takes off. And so I started thinking about what that was. Um, and that ended up being playing in top 40 bands that ended up being in wedding bands that ended up doing consulting, um, meaning, you know, someone buys 
you know, a brand new amplifier or something. They want to get a certain sound. I would go over to their house and help them set things up. I started doing guitar repairs. Um, I started doing, you know, gigs with singer songwriters, acoustic gigs. I started playing in worship bands. You know, I started basically trying to play every night of the week that I could. And um, it started making sense to me all of a sudden that, you know, if you want to do this for a living, it is a job. You know, you have to be versatile, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's one of the things about creating a sustainable career in music is you have to have so many different income streams, you know. So anyway, this went on for a while. And then um, it got to a point where things were kind of comfortable again, um, but they weren't awesome. Um, I was playing at that time, the, the blues band had kind of broken up into a couple of other groups and it kind of morphed into this band called Chris Brooks and the Silver City Boys, which uh, ended up being the top country cover band in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Kind of a weird thing, but uh, there's a radio station there called K102 and it became like the number one country radio station in the country around like 2006, seven, some, sometime in there. Okay. And so all of a sudden this country thing exploded in Minnesota, which was never a thing really before. It was always classic rock. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I grew up on my mom's country records and my dad's blues records. So it was kind of, I knew all the sounds and I had studied plenty of country in college and stuff. So it was kind of an easy transition. Um, and so that went really well. And it was my first experience with a very high professional unit where every song was played note for note. We were playing the best venues in, you know, that area. Um, you know, we would play, you know, Toby Keith's, which was 2000 people on Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, we would do those types of gigs. And, uh, I remember our pedal steel player at the time was talking about, well, yeah, we're doing kind of good, but it's not like Cowboys dance hall in Texas. And I was like, what's that? And he talks about a friend that he had met online. Uh, who was the lead guitar player for Cowboys Dance Hall uh, in San Antonio. So Cowboys Dance Hall, imagine like a Kmart. And the Kmart is completely emptied out and turned into a bar. That's how many people that this place yeah. holds. Yeah. And uh, so one spring, we went down to visit my wife's sister here in McKinney. And we came down here and she's like, there's a new guitar store that opened up. Uh, just down the street. This was the guitar sanctuary. And so I went in there and they had a cool Telecaster. So I started playing that and uh, they're like, do you teach? And they offered me a job on the spot. <laughs> nice. And uh, then there was a cattle call at um, Cowboys Dance Hall because the the guitar player for Cowboys Dance Hall here in Arlington uh, just um, got picked up by Miranda Lambert. Mm-hmm. So there was a vacancy there. So I was like, well, I'll just go down there and try out. And then I got that gig. And so two weeks later, you know, we moved down to McKinney. <laughs> wow. And so, yeah. And so that's, um, that was, that was pretty crazy. And so that was kind of our, our move here. Uh, just stepping back a moment. Um, when I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, I, I did end up, you know, finishing my degree at uh, McNally Smith college of music, uh, which was kind of an interesting thing because, um, at that point I was probably 25, 26, something like that. And, uh, so you're around all these 18 year olds. So it was kind of weird. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I graduated magna cum laude with my bachelor's degree in guitar performance. And, uh, that was, you know, finishing that original Berkeley thing. So they're very similar schools. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. I want to back, go back a little bit and sure. about the, the guitar teaching thing. Cause I'm a guitar teacher as well. I've been uh-huh. teaching for years and have my own teaching business and all that stuff. Um, so from one guitar teacher to another, let's, let's talk about this so that our audience can 
can hear what this is like. Sure. But I think people, I think sometimes people get the perception, oh, you play music all day long. That's super easy. I'd love to have that gig, you know, and just do sit and play guitar all day long. Um, but when you're teaching 35 to 70 students a week, like, you know, okay, talk about how many hours that is a day for you to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not necessarily physically taxing because you're getting to sit in a chair and talk to people, you know, all the time. But, um, but like mentally what that does to you and, you know, how sore your fingers get after a while, like, just talk about that a little bit, like what it is to teach 70 students a week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my schedule would typically start on Monday mornings around 10 or 11 a.m. And it would usually go all the way till we closed at 9 p.m. So we're talking Monday through Friday. And then Saturday mornings, I would teach usually from 9 or 10 a.m. till about four in the afternoon. Um, so it'd be a six days a week thing. Now, there are gaps in there. And one of the things with being a contractor at a music studio is that if that slot isn't filled, you're not getting paid. So it's not an hourly job. Right. Um, and so, you know, in the mornings you would have, uh, usually adult learners. So you could have people that are, um, they own their own small business and they just have a little time in the morning and they can come in, uh, you know, and kind of work on some things there all the way down to, you know, after school gets let out at, you know, elementary and middle schools, you have this influx of kids at that time too. Yeah. So, but, uh, one of the things that I found out very early on is that I became a specialist in teaching adults. So not necessarily kids, um, but adults who already play. And uh, I got a reputation for being the guy that could kind of unlock uh, a lot of these um, problems that adults typically have. Like I've owned a guitar for 20 years, but I've never gotten better at it. Right. And, and going through and, you know, one of the first things that I would do with those types of students is we would start at the very bottom and I would try to uncover any sort of deficiencies in their musical learning. So it could be anything from, hey, how many notes are on your guitar? And they'd be like, uh, seven, right? So not even knowing that there's 12 in the chromatic scale, you know, that's, you know, every time you learn a language, you learn the alphabet first. And so that was one of the first things that I started noticing is like, hey, even way back in the beginning, players can have all these different gaps. And so being very analytical, um, I would always construct a very specific to that student um, accountability plan for practice and, and a practicing regimen. And so some students, I would use Excel spreadsheets where we would kind of go through all the different things to practice. Uh, For some students, I would just uh, make it kind of more, you know, open-ended. But the idea with practicing and something that I've used with myself almost my entire life is journaling. So since around 1995, I have written down every single day's practice and everything that I've done on that day. And what I typically do is this. So I'll start off with maybe 30 minutes of warm-up. Um, and that's just kind of like to acclimate my hands back to the guitar and also to reduce tension so that it feels easy to play. You don't want to just, you know, fire up your amplifier and hit cliffs it over first thing in the morning. Right. So, <laughs> um, so I would do that. And then I have something called scatter. So scatter is an acronym for scales, chords, arpeggios, um, triads, improvisation, and reading. And so what I do is, is I will put on maybe a pad in the background, 
I used to do this with my mom's organ. And like, let's say it's C major. So today's key is C major. I will put the pad on and I'll practice all my scales in the key of C major in every single position. Um, and so the guitar neck, of course, you can play things in multiple positions, but from the open position to the last fret, you're playing all your scales in every position in eighth notes and triplets, sixteenths, um, to get the whole neck. And then you start doing different types of what I call limiting exercises. So I only get the top two strings, or I can only use, you know, strings two and four or something like that so that you can kind of do that. So this is for 15 minutes or so. And then the next 15 minutes, you're going to go through and play all of your triads in the key of C, um, you know, C major, D minor, E minor, F major, G major, A minor, and B diminished. So, and then you're going to move on to seventh chords, all your different inversions for those things. So we have scales for 15 minutes. We have triads for 15 minutes. We have arpeggios for 15 minutes, all your chords in the key for 15 minutes. And then you're going to put on a backing track in the key of C major. And what that does is you have been so saturated with this sound of C major in your head that you will play things over this backing track that you would not have done otherwise because you're so saturated. Mm. Um, and after that, I would do sight reading exercises in that key. And so every day, whatever the key of the day is, I will go through cycle four. So cycle four is something that a lot of modern musicians will use um, as a tool. Um, it's basically the circle of fifths backwards. So C, F, B flat, E flat, A flat, D flat, F sharp, B, E, A, D, and G. So I would do this whole practicing thing with C major on day one. Then it would go to F major on day two, B flat major on day three. I go through all 12 keys. Once you're done with that, you go through all 12 keys of melodic minor. And then the next 12 days is harmonic minor and then harmonic major. And then you go through diminished and then you go through whole tone. So it takes about 50 or 60 days to go through everything. And then you go right back to major. And so this is uh, what I call the maintenance aspect of my practice. And so this is done first. It usually takes about an hour and a half. And what happens is, like, for example, when I joined Cowboys Dance Hall and I had to learn over 600 songs in a month, how do professionals do that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because everything is something you've seen before and it's, it's accessible in your playing. So, you know, I always use this analogy. If I want to make a meal for my wife, I'm a terrible cook, by the way. I have to use the joy of cooking and like you flip it open and you're like uh, turmeric and like, I don't know where the pepper is and like, you don't know where anything is. Oh, crud. I have to go back to the store and get something else. It takes forever to make the meal and it doesn't taste very good anyway. So, but a uh, professional chef is going to not even need the cookbook. They can quickly grab all the ingredients. They can quickly put it together and it's wonderful. Um, And so this is how professionals learn songs really quickly. Um, It's through not just relative pitch and uh, music theory knowledge, but it's through logic as well. So you know what chords are in this key, you know, typically where this type of player would play something and you can put the songs together. So the practicing plan is actually there to actually help facilitate a person's ability to learn songs fast. It's kind of a weird thing. The most students, they want to just play songs, which is great. But the fact that all they want to do is play songs is the reason they can't play songs. Because, you know, how many times have you had this? Somebody comes in with a brand new guitar and they want to learn Hotel California, right? So it's like, it's like, that's like going to, you know, some sort of martial arts instructor and saying, hey, you know, first day, let's do a roundhouse kick. They'd be like, no, there's a process here, right? (laughs) And so, you know, you can do that first song, Hotel California, and have it take you three months. Or you can do things in order and then eventually, I did this with a student one time. 
We did Hotel California. He wanted to learn it as his first song. We waited about a year, and then he ended up learning it all, including the solo, in one afternoon on a Saturday. And I was like, see? Right? So yeah. So anyway, so back to this this practicing thing, this this core studies that I'm talking about, all these nuts and bolts, the boring stuff. Um, this stuff is done all in one chunk, and then the person can then move on to repertoire, and then they can move on to the creative aspects and jamming, whatever else they want to do. And I like separating these things. So, you know, do the boring stuff, and then if you want to learn your, your songs or whatever, do that as musical dessert. Um, I think that works out really well um, as, as a practicing plan. So, you know, and it kind of works with this other thing is that, you know, everything that we do musically has to be the mind, the ear and the hand. It's like a tripod. And if any part of this, you know, is imbalanced, the whole thing's going to fall over. You know, if you have somebody that has a good ear and they have good technique, but they don't have any theory knowledge, they're going to struggle. Yeah. You know, so anyway, so going back to these teaching these students, um, I would have to figure out first what the students discipline level was, what they were actually trying to get out of it. Obviously, we're not going to, you know, try to push all this on someone that just wants to play songs around the campfire. Um, But what I started learning was, is most people can play music well if they apply themselves. And, um, you know, many people end up doing things besides just, you know, playing around the campfire. So. Um, but anyway, so the, the idea with the 70 students a week is to, you know, kind of create a specialized plan for each person based on their goals and then kind of push them a little bit farther. Um, I've always been a big fan of shoot for the stars, land on the moon. Meaning if I give an assignment to learn these 20 chords by next week, they're going to come back and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I was only able to learn 12 of them. And I'll be like, that's great. Cause I only wanted you to learn 10. Right. But if I would have said learn 10, you'd learn five. Right. Um, I do this invisible too. One of the first things we do in the intro to theory class, um, your final for that, that two weeks is basically you have to recite all 12 major scales verbally cycle four in less than 90 seconds. And so, because this fixes one of the biggest deficiencies that players have is they just don't know, you know, their scales or they don't know what notes are available in a key. Yeah. Um, and then when they do it in three minutes and they think they failed, I'm like, well, three minutes was my goal. I just didn't tell, tell you that. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I would have, I probably would have hated you being my theory teacher in college. <laughs> I hated theory, man. I was not, I was not good at theory in college. I've gotten better. You know, I, I don't play, I'm not as good as you. I can tell just by you talking. I'm like, yeah, I, I need to go back to school. <laughs> and I've been doing this my whole life and I've still got so much to learn, you know, it's like, but one of the things I think is, that's really interesting and encouraging to hear you say all those, all, all of that stuff is that there's always something to learn for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are because even how long have you been playing now? How many uh, years do you think? 30. Okay. So in 30 years, you're still, you're still, um, practicing hours on end, you know, and going out and playing, you're still doing all those things you did back in college when you first started learning how to do this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's what we're all supposed to be doing. We all should be doing this because there's always something to learn when we see Brad Paisley and slash and Keith Urban and all these guys out there shredding up and down a neck, John Mayer, you know, shredding up and down a neck all day long. And we're like, man, how does how do they do that? Well, because they're doing pretty much just what you just said. You know, they're just practicing nonstop. From you wake up, you start practicing until you go to bed, right? Mm-hmm. 
and pretty much anywhere in between there. So, um, so that's good to hear someone actually say that out loud because I think we all need to hear what you just said. So thank you for sharing, sharing that. Um, tell me about, um, so playing for the honky tonk now, um, I want to ask, I'm trying to think of the way to ask this because you, you had an open, an opening came up there, right? And so you got to go, go and audition. That, let's do this. Explain what the audition process is like to, to become a guitar player or any musician at a music venue mm-hmm. like, like you're at right there. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Texas is unique, I think, because we have residencies still. So this is different than what I was experiencing in Minnesota um, and different than you know many of my friends across the country. Uh, experience. And what a residency is, is you basically load in your gear on Wednesday and then you take it out on Sunday morning. You stay there for those four nights and you play. And, you know, it's usually four or five sets. So they're very, very long nights, right? So you start playing at eight or nine and you're not done till two in the morning, you know, so you're playing, playing a lot of sets of material. Um, The idea is, is that you have a repertoire built up that is versatile enough for any crowd. Um, and so, you know, a musician is only as good as how many songs that they can play. I don't care how technical you are, like with all the practicing that I was just describing, if I could do that, but I didn't know any songs, it would be worthless. Right. So we have to apply this to actual music. Um, so the audition process is kind of tricky. Usually they'll give you, you know, four or five songs to learn, Um, But then they'll call out standards and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't want to just be impressed by your technical ability. They want to listen to your tone. They want to see how you fit in a mix. Uh, They're judging your groove. They're judging how you can get from one song to another with minimal time in between. Um, And they're looking for things that are uh, how you, how you react in challenging situations. Hmm. So for example, they might say, um, you know, I don't know, we're doing silver wings, which is usually in the key of E um, and you practice it, learn it in the key of E and you're like, okay, let's play it. And they're like, oh, but she's singing it and she wants to do it in C. And then they just start mm-hmm. counting it off. Now you have to <laughs> actually <laughs> yeah. move it to the key of C on, on you know, um, but they, they want to see how accurately that you can play parts, um, that you have the tones correct. And uh, they're not very impressed by shreddery. So a lot of the guys that, you know, you're sitting there and you get to watch the guy in front of you play, you know, and some of those guys were, you know, faster, more technically proficient players than I was, but they didn't learn the parts correctly mm-hmm. or they were too loud or something like that. So you, you really have to, my, my favorite thing about uh, uh, Larry Carlton, one of my favorite guitar players, he says, you know, you have to think like an arranger, not a guitar player. And so you have to think about the overall band mix. You have to think about how what you're playing is impacting everyone else. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other things that they'll probably do is they'll have you play parts that aren't your instrument. So I'll never forget the first time playing Amarillo by morning. And I'm like, I got this right. I learned all the guitar parts and then they're counting it off and it just occurs to me. I'm like, there's no fiddle player. Right. And so who's going to play that intro melody? Oh, it's me. Right. So you have to be able to do those things as well. Um, yeah. So now, uh, Cowboys dance hall has, like I said, multiple locations. Um, and uh, it's interesting because the managing partner of the Guitar Sanctuary where I was teaching, he actually played Cowboys too in like the 1990s. So we had some, you know, common ground there as well. Um, but I use that as basically a jumping off point 
So after you are a Cowboys alum, you can go on and other people want to hire you. So I started playing with a lot of other bands after that. And, uh, you know, finally ended up playing with uh, Keith Mitchell, who is, I'm still with him today. So I've been playing with him since about 2016. And so he's basically the step above the Cowboys thing. Um, this is where Billy Bob's comes in and Southern Junction and all these big venues. So I went from, you know, the Minnesota thing to uh, the Cowboys thing, you know, to, um, you know, Keith Mitchell basically doing things like opening for Willie Nelson and opening for REO Speedwagon and doing all these great types of gigs. And um, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, one thing I will say about playing with Keith um, is that uh, there's no such thing as a set list. So out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs, he can call anyone he wants at any time he wants, and you have to be ready. So we'll be literally finishing a song, and he'll just walk over to me and whisper the name of the next song. I have to get all my patches ready, and then we click it off. And wow. so he wants minimal time in between songs. So you have to navigate all that stuff, right? You have to navigate yeah. the uh, guitar switches and the, you know, the tones and... Uh, get yourself kind of, you know, in the mindset of that new song, even as you're being distracted by the crowd and all these other things happening as well. So, uh, but it's been a really good experience, man. I think that's such an interesting perspective to, to be in or an interesting position to be in as a musician, because it's such a different thing. Like, cause I'm an artist and I go out and I tour all over the country you know, and all the artists that people know on the radio and TV and whatever that you listen to and you buy their albums. And, you know, so you think of those artists, you think of Ario Speedwagon or Willie Nelson or Toby Keith or whoever. And, you know, they go out, they write their own music, you know, or, or they record their own music. And then that's what they go out and they play their songs. And that's it. And their band knows their songs. Now, granted, most of their musicians are going to know other songs as well you know, to some degree at least, but their goal, their focus is to play the music of that artist and that is their job. And so when they're done at night, they get to go sleep on a bus or go home and sleep and they get up and they go and they play those same 10, 20 songs again every night. Mm -hmm. And they get really, really good at those particular songs. Right. But you're learning 600 songs mm -hmm. and you have to know those 600 or more you know, but we'll just say you said 600 earlier, so we're going to go with that number for now. So you have to know those 600 songs off the top of your head in a moment's notice and just go and, you know, and get your stuff ready and just start playing. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a completely different way of thinking of playing music, you exactly. know, and it's a much more difficult. Like, I would not want to be in that position. I mean, it'd be, a, <laughs> it'd be a blast if I knew it, if I knew it like you did, you know, it'd be I'm sure it's an amazing experience and I would love it to be able to do it. But part of it terrifies me just to think about that, you know, to set and have to go do all that. Granted, I know that, you know, once you've done it as long as you have and you got the experience, then it's you probably don't think about it. Do you, let me ask you this. Do you get do you still get nervous when some when he walks up and whispers in your ear, whatever song and you're like, oh, crud. OK, uh, and then go. Mm -hmm. Does it still make you nervous or are you just so used to it? Doesn't even think you don't even think about it anymore. Um, it, it really depends on what it is. You know, sometimes it'll be a song that, uh, we haven't played in three months. That's, that's when you start worrying a little bit and you try to remember how it goes. Yeah. And you know, those particular songs that we don't play as often, or maybe they're for a specific type of thing, like a wedding or something, um, you know, they may not go off as perfectly as the ones that we play from, you know, gig to gig. Um, but 
you know, I, I think that's where learning how to improvise comes in. Mm-hmm. So if you're an improviser, um, you can quickly get out of these tight situations by making stuff up or playing in the style of that type of thing. This is why um, improvisers are always the studio musicians. Look at the wrecking crew with people like Tommy Tedesco or Larry Carlton. All these guys are improvisers, right? And so I've always been fascinated with the studio scene and how people like, you know, Larry Carlton can play the kid Charlemagne solo in one take, you know? Um, And it would be like if I were to memorize a poem in Japanese and you know, I don't know how to speak Japanese. And so I'm just trying to pronounce the words as best as I can. Um, but I don't know what I'm saying. That's like people who just learn things note for note and they don't understand the theory behind it or they can't improvise. If you actually want to speak a language, you like we're doing right now, obviously we're just kind of talking back and forth and none of this is, you know, written out. Um, right. So if you're able to improvise, when you do do get to a point in a song that, oh, we haven't played the song in six months, I forget how the solo goes, I know the contour of the line, okay. And then you play it and no one really notices the difference, Yeah. <laughs> um, depending on the song, of course. Sure. Um, but it is, it, it can be, it can be frightening sometimes, but most of the time it goes over pretty well. Now, so oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, just as a just as a note here, why so many songs? Because you're talking about like the bands that only do like the, the same twenty songs every night. Yeah. When you have a residency, and you're playing four nights a week, the management doesn't want to hear the same stuff every night. They want to sure. hear it differently. And yeah. uh, like at Billy Bob's, you know, Wednesday night is more of a you know younger crowd thursday is line dance night so maybe more 90s brooks and done right mm-hmm. and then you know friday and saturday might one night might be a legend right and then the other night might be a classic rock band and so you have to tailor your set list to that what does someone have to do to lose their gig hmm. in a venue like that you know do you like how many mistakes are you allowed to make <laughs> before like okay you're fired or because you said you have to know it note for note when you're learning, at least when you're, you know, first getting, getting going there, you have to know every song note for note, like how, how much lean you need to, you just explain it a little bit, but like how much, much leniency are you allowed to have, you know, on so many songs before it's like, Hey, you're getting too far off of the beaten path of where we want you to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I have a rule for this. Um, there are three different types of songs when we're talking about this thing number one uh it is a note for note type of thing where it's an iconic song and the artist wrote out let's say it's a guitar solo note for note and you have to play it note for note and when you go online to watch them play it live they play it note for note so this would be stuff like the eagles so if you're playing i can't tell you why you have to play that solo note for note because it was written almost like a mini composition within the song right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then the second type is one where the original artist improvised it in the studio, but you have to play it note for note because it's iconic. I know no one would ever do this, but let's just say that um, you played Stairway to Heaven as a tune on your set list. Uh, Jimmy Page did not play that solo in one take. It was many, many, many takes. In fact, if you go online, you will never, ever be able to find a video of him playing the whole thing he always starts off in a similar contour of line and then he improvises for the rest of it and he maybe put that little fast lick at the end but you will never see him play that note for note 
He never has. Mm -hmm. And the original solo was just spliced from all these different takes. But because that solo is so iconic, you have to play it note for note because guess what? You're not Jimmy Page. (laughs) Right. Uh, And uh, the third type of solo is the one where in the in the studio, it's very obviously improvised, what I call like a throwaway solo, and then you can as well, or it's a jam type of song. So there's some there's some uh, modern country songs where the solo is just a noodly pentatonic thing, and it's over in four measures, right? You kind of get the contour of the line, and you're in and out, and you're good to go. Um, so those types of things are always kept in mind. The person that would fire you in this case, it would be my my boss, which is Keith, not not the venue. So he's hired and he's the the contractor through the club, and then we are his employees for the most part. So um, losing a gig would be actually kind of difficult. Um, I would say that there's a lot more leeway than you would think. Um, there's an awful lot of mentorship that goes on. Um, if you don't have things together, um, people will work with you. Um, People will get fired for overplaying more than they would get fired for underplaying or maybe playing a few notes wrong here or there. So it's it's almost like if it's, you know, you go out there and you start shredding like Brad Paisley over every single song, you won't last long. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing this. It's such, a, such an interesting conversation to have to get this perspective on, on this type of a venue for, you know, because so many people that are listening – you know, people love cover songs and so many people play in cover bands. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to hear the level of professionalism that you have to have and tech and, um, and technicality in what you do, you know, and just the whole perspective of it from learning and teaching students and practicing yourself through the process of playing it live every single night for hours on end, you know, and that's another thing is that when you're playing, music, you know, bars and music venues, like you're talking about, you know, you're playing four or five hours of music right. every single night, pretty much. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, when you go to a concert, it's an hour and a half, usually two hours tops for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's just a shorter number of songs and it's a set number of songs because it's a specific artist and that kind of thing. So it's just two different ways of looking at it. And one, one of the things I want to make sure that the audience knows, especially for, for players and, um, you know, we should all we should all aspire to do what you do as far as learning and practicing on our own like you know if everybody had the opportunity to sit down and practice for two or three hours a day and then go do your job of playing music or whatever it is then we should all do that not everybody can do that and you know not everybody's that's not everybody's thing necessarily and i get that and there are so many so many musicians and artists that make a living professionally doing music that don't do near what either of us do right mm-hmm. but they're able to make a living doing this and so i want to still encourage people hey just because you're not doing what it is that we're doing and putting the, the amount of practice in that we do or the style that we're doing doesn't mean that you can't you can't do this for a living it's just that this is a deep deep dive you know for those who can do it and are, are pursuing to be the best musician that you can be these are definite things that you need to to pursue um as much as possible so yeah and um, i want to i want to add to um this was a light bulb moment for me um if you want to do anything for a living most of us are working eight hours a day so why do musicians think they can make a living at music and not play eight hours a day yeah you know and so yeah (laughs) you know i had i had a teacher tell me that once he's like you know 
and if and if you want to make a living as a musician and you can do it only putting in a few hours a day uh, more power to you but you know most people even if the music isn't technical i mean you're on the phone booking gigs and you're you know talking right. to venues and emails there's, and all that other stuff too so yeah, it, there's always something yeah yeah there's always something and that's when we talk about it all the time because like I, and everybody knows this if they're listening to the show they know this about me because i talk about it all the time there's like seven or eight different things that i do in music that allow me to do music full time you know mm-hmm. and part of it is writing music it's producing music it's practicing it's teaching it is getting on the phone or emailing venues booking shows or booking other artists or whatever there's just all kinds of stuff that you have to do to to be able to do that especially as an independent artist right you know it's it's a little different than being a signed artist kind of a thing um and depending on what you're wanting to do in music so but all that is absolutely true um i know we're going to run out of time here before too long so you got some other stuff to do but let's talk about visible mm-hmm. music college because you're a professor with visible now so um let's talk about visible and how you got in with visible and what you do there as a professor sure absolutely um so um this started probably back in 2018 i had approached uh george fuller who's the mayor of mckinney he's also the owner of the guitar sanctuary about creating a college here in mckinney so we have a wonderful arts district and I kind of put together this little map and I was like, okay, so you have Musicians Institute in Hollywood, you got, you know, Berkeley is in Boston, you got Belmont, you know, we got all these different schools and places. Um, where is the contemporary music school in the center of the country? And there wasn't one that I knew of, right? Um, and so I was talking to him about possibly creating a, you know, contemporary music school here in McKinney. Um, yes, we have UNT, but UNT, you can get a degree in classical or you can get it in jazz studies. And so we're talking about the more, you know, multiple genres of music and not just jazz education, but also, you know, rock, blues, all this other stuff too. Um, and so he was kind of keen to the idea, but because he was mayor, you know, we didn't want it to be conflict of interest with all this other stuff going on. He's like, you know what? Um, this woman, Christine Simpson, had just emailed me a couple of days ago about uh, this other college visible that's actually looking to move to McKinney. Maybe you should talk to her. And so I ended up getting in contact with Christine and uh, visible was in another location uh, south of here. And they were moving to McKinney to Christ Fellowship Church. So being a smaller teaching site with, you know, less than 10 students, um, they can fit into a church and kind of try and build things from there. So I started talking to them about that and met with Ken Stortz, who's the president of Visible, and um, started off as an adjunct professor in the fall of 2019, teaching guitar and uh, some music theory courses. And uh, then I became the campus lead. So kind of like the dean of this campus. So I would take care of not only the day-to-day stuff that happens at the college, but, you know, be the, you know, the connecting person to the Memphis campus and also to churches and other things around the area. Um, And then within a couple, you know, months later, um, I went half-time and then full-time. And then from there I went and was offered the job to be the head of the music theory division. And then within a couple months after that, they offered me the job to be head of the guitar division as well. And so um, I'm managing two different divisions, the theory division and writing textbooks for that, um, organizing the curriculum, and also for the guitar division. So at Visible, while it is 
a um, it's it's kind of like a uh, contemporary music school for Christians. So even though some people call it a worship school, um, we also will you know cater to students who are just they want that Berkeley or Belmont experience, but they want it smaller and they want it to be Christian, right? So, right. Uh, and that's that's kind of something that we do there. Um, and so I've modeled a lot of what we do. Um, after my experiences at Berkeley and McNally Smith and, uh, you know, the same type of proficiencies for every semester, the same type of in-depth music education, the theory courses are all practical based on, you know, if you have to learn five songs for church on Sunday, it shouldn't take you all afternoon on Saturday. You should be able to do it in a half hour. Right. Right. And so that's another thing that, that we haven't talked about. That's, that's really important. Um, that I try to do it visible is efficiency. So why do we need to be so quick at music? Why do we need to be able to recite our major scales or melodic minor scales or whatever it is so fast? Well, because the faster you are at recalling and performing musical information, the quicker you can get stuff done. The quicker you get stuff done, the more projects you can take on. If it takes you eight hours to learn a set, then you can't do anything else in those eight hours or make any money in those eight hours. If it takes you 30 minutes, now you have seven and a half hours to go out and work on other things. Um, And so the faster you're able to do things, the more money you're going to make because the more opportunities that you're going to have. Um, and so, especially in the theory and the guitar division, I'm very much about speed. Um, and I have a bunch of different things for any musical bit of information that I have students do. One, you have to be able to verbalize it. You know, C major is CEG, right? I'm talking about the triad. You have to be able to write it. This is what it looks like in standard notation. You have to be able to play it. Here it is on the keyboard. Here it is on my guitar. You have to be able to sing it. You have to be able to hear it when you hear it on, you know, music that you're trying to learn. And so you have all these different checkpoints of mastering material. Because sometimes people can play something, but they can't notate it. Or they can hear something, but they don't know what it is, right? It's kind of like that... uh, the analogy for perfect pitch versus relative pitch. So a perfect pitch person, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a color TV set that's out of focus. You've probably heard this before, you know, so they would say, uh, those notes are E, G sharp, D, and G natural. What chord is that? Well, I have no idea. What's it used for? No clue. Somebody with relative pitch, it's kind of like a black and white TV that's high definition. So you play those notes and they're going to go, well, that's one major third flat seven and sharp nine. Oh, it's a dominant seven sharp nine chord. That's, you know, you can use a half whole diminished scale over that. Um, you know, it's usually a five chord in a minor key. They know all the functions, right? Well, which dominant seven sharp nine chord is that? Oh, I don't know. Uh, F sharp, D, it's an E. Oh yeah, it's an E, right? And so the person with perfect pitch or the person that's, you know, hearing those tones, they don't know the form and function of them and what they're used for. Whereas the person with relative pitch knows exactly what the structure is, but they may not know exactly what notes. Now, what's the best of both worlds? You combine them, you get that high definition color TV um, where you're able to actually say, hey, that's E, G sharp, D, and G natural. That's an E7 sharp nine chord. It's the five chord in A harmonic minor, and I could probably use a half whole diminished scale over it. So you get all of those things together, you see. Um, and so there's there's all these different like levels of knowing something in music. And uh, what I've found is the pleasure of playing music comes from 
being able to participate in the music in that way and not being frustrated. See, when you slow things down like this and you kind of methodically go through all these different ways of learning something, you never get frustrated. Yeah. You know, because there's always another angle that you can go at to get the answer. Um, and that's what I try to impart to our students. Now, some of them don't like that very much. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was going to ask how many, how often do students drop out because it's just like, they're like, I, I can't do this. It's too much. Does that happen very often or ever? Well, yeah. Or do they course, just stick through it and go? Um, I would say that, um, you know, overall at most music colleges, most people drop out. I remember, you know, orientation at Berkeley, there was like 110 of us, right? And they're like, look around this room. Next semester, there's only going to be 20 of you left. Yeah. You know, um, so, and for some people, it's it's a way for them to actually see if doing music in this way is is right for them. Um, cause we don't all have the same learning styles. And of course you and me both know that there's plenty of famous guitar players and musicians out there that know no theory that are better than both of us put together. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's just the path that I took. If you are somebody that is, you know, analytical and somebody that, that feels that they could benefit from, you know, training, um, then, then school might be the way to go. So I think for me personally, and you know, a confession that I have about all this, the reason I wanted to go to school is because um, uh, my self-esteem was pretty low, and I knew that if I had more knowledge, it would increase my field goal percentage, so to speak, for yeah. music, and and have less of a um, chance of failure, I guess. And so um, it got me thinking about that a lot, and then I came up with something called the performance gap. And this is kind of my overarching main philosophy for music. And it goes like this. If a song is this difficult to play, so you know, no one can see my hand right now, but in your proficiency level, so your ability on the instrument is exactly at that level, we're human beings, we're always going to fluctuate. So uh, maybe you had too much salty food last night or something, and so you may play poorly. But the idea is, is you grow your musical skills. So you're up here, the song doesn't get any more difficult, but you as a human being are still going to fluctuate, but there's no chance that you're going to make a mistake. So it's kind of like Michael Jordan doing a pickup basketball game with a bunch of sixth graders. Even if he's 90, he's going to dominate, right? right? So the idea is, is that if I'm playing country music in a honky tonk and I'm playing, you know, major chords and major pentatonic scales, but my background is in Charlie Parker bebop solos and John McLaughlin and Schofield and all this other stuff, the chances of me making a mistake are a lot less. Than right. if, so that's what I call the performance gap. It's just this, how big is the, is the distance between your overall ability and what you're doing? And what I found is, is if that is large, uh, you relax, your performance anxiety goes away um, because you are so much in command of the situation. Yeah, that, that's great. I love that. And that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of helps because people watch when people watch like Brad Paisley, we keep coming back to him because he's just lightning all over the neck. And sometimes it's like, wait, he's going, his hands are, his fingers move so fast. You're like, how could you possibly know what he's, you know, where everything's got to go in that short amount of time. Right. Right. But when you explain it that way, you know, his performance gap, his level is, he's just, he's like you, he just practices all the time, knows every position that you could possibly play anything, you know, on the guitar. And when you, when you just know that stuff, because you've been doing it over and over and over, like you guys have, then 
you don't, he just doesn't have to think about it near as much. And it's just kind of, mem- you know, muscle memory at that point, he can just kind of go wherever he wants to. Um, but that makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, real quick before we wrap up here, I got a couple of quick questions to end with, but, mm-hmm. um, as far as with what you do at, at visible with your curriculum, um, cause you're writing all of your own curriculum, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, what are a couple of things that you would tell potential students? Anybody listening wants to go to visible and, and learn from, from Corey Hicks, how to play guitar or become a better guitar player and do this for a living. Like what are, one or two things that it's going to be like staples that you're going to teach your students to do. Yeah. So, um, in the beginning, the first semester, uh, we focus primarily on the major scale and the chords associated with that writing skills, the staff, uh, recognizing intervals quickly. So if a person were to have, you know, a couple of positions in the major scale that know most of their bar chords, know most of their open position chords, um, and have played for a couple of years at least. I mean, that's that's generally going to be all that's required. Um, our entrance requirements are not as high as other colleges um, because we do know that a lot of people, um, you know, maybe they you know, became Christians in their teenage years, um, became very influenced by the worship team, decided that they might want to try out for the worship team. And now they're playing on the worship team and they realize that music's their calling. Well, for some of these students, they're 16, 17, 18 already by the time that happens. And so, you know, they don't have 10 years, you know, they didn't start playing when they were six, like Brad Paisley, you know? Um, so, um, I think that that, that is good. The one thing to understand about visible is that most people are on a three year track. So it is pretty, I mean, it's very dense, right? So you're, you're not doing a three year degree in three years. You're doing a four year degree in three years. So it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, but I think that saturation helps. Um, so being that it's a bachelor of arts in music and not a bachelor of music. So the bachelor of music, uh, degree like Berkeley Musicians Institute, Belmont, or you know UNT or whatever uh, is a more uh, difficult degree. I would say it's a more focused on the performance aspect, and it's it goes more in depth. The Bachelor's of Arts degree is a more, uh, I would say it's a more versatile degree um, because you get a lot more humanities and you get a biblical discipleship minor and you get all these other stuff as well. And so what I generally do is I say, okay, let's have our curriculum be about 60% of the clip of those other schools. And so, so it is a little bit uh, easier to get that going. Um, And so first semester we do the major scale and all the stuff I talked about. Uh, Second semester, we start getting into modes and seventh chords and tensions, um, drop twos, inversions, um, you know, kind of harmony as it relates to scales and stuff. And then our third semester, we get into uh, melodic minor, the modes of that harmonic minor. We start touching on uh, jazz, not to play jazz, but to understand how uh, jazz works as a framework uh, for improvisation. And uh, because most students have not been familiar with jazz at that point, I think it's a really good way to kind of get used to that. I mean, mm-hmm. very first uh, wedding gig I did it wasn't the 40 songs we had to learn that was journey and all this other stuff. It was the half hour of dinner jazz that kicked my butt. <laughs> yeah. You know, Yeah, jazz is hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
but then uh, the fourth semester, we kind of put everything together and we just kind of make sure everything's tweaked a little bit. We get into some reharmonization. And then our, uh, when you get into comp and arranging, which is after theory four, uh, we just kind of let them loose. And we say, okay, now you've learned all these things. And what we want you to do is just uh, use your own artistic mind and create. And we have a couple of creative projects for them to do by the end of the semester. And it's kind of interesting because um, we just had a graduate. She showed up to Visible in the fall of 2019 with an acoustic guitar and a capo. And uh, she thought that she was just going to you know, play worship the rest of her life. And uh, she just wanted to get a degree. And that's what she wanted to do. So she just graduated with her senior concert playing John Schofield, John Mayer. Um, she did all these <laughs> interesting, like complex modal uh, instrumentals and original tunes and stuff. And she really developed. And it wasn't so much that we were pushing her to be this other person. Um, she just found out that she just really enjoyed it. It just unlocked yeah. this thing inside of her. Yeah. And so there's always that too for some students. Sure. Yeah. When when your brain is unlocked and new things are all of a sudden made relevant to you, I mean, you're all of a sudden your world is just wide open and you can do so many new and different things. And I've even found that out more recently myself. There are some things that I've learned in just the past couple of months that I was like, man, that made a huge difference in, in my thinking and how I play. And I've been playing for 42 years. I think something like that. Since I was four years old, I've been playing guitar. Right. And, Again, you're always learning. There's always something to to improve on and to incorporate into who you are and what you're already doing, right? Right. So, um, but that makes a huge difference, and it makes complete sense that she would become a different person, so to say, quote unquote, a different person, because you just you know so much more, and you can realize, oh, I can do these things and then put put this into my playing, and create a whole new new thing that you didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes sense, and hopefully that will be the case for anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's why we teach. We're trying to teach people as as guitar teachers or as music teachers. We're trying to teach people to to open up their understanding of the instrument so that they can do things that they would have never dreamed of doing before. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, that's great. I appreciate you sharing all that kind of stuff. And so anybody um, I, I mean, I can't speak highly enough of, of visible and regardless of where your campus is, whether they come to McKinney, Texas, or go to Memphis is the main campus. Um, up in Chicago area is where they got a campus up there as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, if you're looking to go to a college, then I would definitely recommend Visible. Um, as we wrap up, I always do this with all my guests, some some advice that you can share. I mean, you're, you've already shared tons, but, you know, if you're wanting to get into the music business, I would say either as... Um, in context of our conversation, either as a musician, as a guitar player specifically, or um, maybe as someone who wants to become a teacher, who wants to become a guitar teacher or a music teacher, whether it be privately or working for a company like Guitar Center or Guitar Sanctuary, that kind of a thing, mm-hmm. or they want to become a professor out of college. Like that, that's a, a relatively newer thing for you the past few years. Like, like what is some advice that you would give? Okay, this is how you do this. These are the things that you would do to get in your foot in the door to do these types of things correctly. Or you should avoid doing these things if you want to do this for a living. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say the first thing to do is to be fearless. Um, you know, 
say yes to as many gigs as possible, even if you don't think that you're going to be able to do it as well. Um, I, I have one student right now that he wants to be completely ready before he takes a gig. And that's just not how it works, right? Yeah, so you're never get, completely ready. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and do music that, that you don't particularly like. Now, we haven't talked about this, but guess how many of those 600 songs I enjoy playing? <laughs> right. Very Four, few. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Four or five. And so, you know, and the same thing is true uh, as a teacher. You know, somebody is going to ask you mm-hmm. to teach them a song that's not your preferred genre. They're going to ask you to teach them a song that you don't like. Right. Yep. I remember this one girl came in my very first week teaching um, at that, you know, where I was gifted all those students. And she just loved this band called the Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah. Every week she would come in with all these songs that she wanted to learn. And I was just like really deep into like, you know, Robin Ford and Larry Carlton. I was like, ah, you know, but you, you kind of learn that like, hey, you know, they're paying you for this. So you have to yep. be um, the, the lessons actually, uh, they help us kind of cultivate our ear as well because you have to sit there in front of the student and most of the time you're figuring out a song that you don't know on the spot for them yep um in 30 minutes or less in 30 minutes or less right um so um i'll just rattle off some some pointers that i have work on your ear most guitar players their ear is not uh you know they don't practice their ear training very much so um having a good ear is important um, and then if you blend that with your theory knowledge, you can kind of come up with a logical way of learning songs. You know, there's three major chords in a major key. So if I play one major chord and I go up a whole step and it sounds major, guess what it is? It's not 50 different options. There's only one option, right? So, um, you know, thinking of things like that. Um, the second uh, part of this would be, you know, when you are practicing, your practicing is not supposed to be fun. Okay, so like Muhammad Ali said that he never once enjoyed a single second of his training, but he wanted to win so much that it didn't matter, right? So playing music is fun if you can play the song to your standards, and if it's not up to your standards, it's not going to be fun anyway. So think about it like professional athletes having to go to the gym, right? They don't just scrimmage for four hours. They have to you know, work on all sorts of different things, watch footage, you know, go to the gym training drills, that type of thing. So learn to love the process of practice and uh, document everything. Get a journal, write down everything you do, video yourself, right? One of the things I love seeing in students practicing journals is that metronome marking tick up. So one of the drills that I have students do is we do uh, note recognition on the guitar. And so say it's the low E string and they have to play C, F, B, flat, E, flat, A, flat, D, flat, F, sharp, B, A, D, G. And I have them go for three to five minutes at a certain tempo. They're playing all these different notes. And the goal is, is to get to that three or five minute mark without a mistake. Right. And so you see, you see in their journal, because, you know, if I say play an A flat on the B string, ding, you have to be able to do that as quickly as possible. Um, But seeing this metronome mark can go up for any skill is is really really encouraging uh, because these little improvements a lot of students don't see them they'll be like i've been practicing for three months and i don't notice any improvement because with the journal you can say well three months ago you were at 72 beats per minute and now you're at 94 that's obviously oh yeah yeah i am getting better there right and it also kind of shows you um 
where your limitations are. I remember I was struggling with this one picking exercise for like three months. And I had notated it every single day in my journal. Same exact tempo, couldn't break through the ceiling. And then after three months, it just bounced up like eight beats per minute. And I learned something about myself. I was like, if you're ever struggling with something, at least personally for me, give it three months because it'll usually work itself out. But what if I would have quit at the two-month mark? What if I wouldn't have been journaling at all? I would have never had that breakthrough. Hmm. Um, and then uh, from a professional point of view, um, <laughs> it, the interesting thing is about what I do is uh, guess how many songs I've written in the last year? Zero. Zero. Okay, so I'm not the everyone's type of musician. I'm a sideman. Um, I am a you know a technician. I'm not somebody that's going to sit there and write songs all day long. So I, I realize yeah. there's different types of musicians. Right. But if you are the type of musician that wants to gig a lot, um, you will make far more money doing commercial music than you will doing originals, and that's just a fact. Um, you know. Uh, there are bands that I know of around this area where the players are making on their 1099s 50 to 60 grand a year. And so the idea that, because we always think that a cover band must be less than an original artist. But, you know, and I have this Excel spreadsheet I'll show students. I'll be like, you plop, plop in how many students you're teaching a week and then your gigs and then your church gigs and watch that number. And so we would plot that in. Okay. I'm going to teach 20 half hour lessons a week. I'm going to gig Friday and Saturday night. I'm going to do a ch church gig on every Sunday. And then, uh, you know, I'm gonna do guitar repairs here and there. And then they're like, Oh my gosh, that's $48,000 a year. I'm like, yeah, you can do this for a living, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, cause a lot thank of people you. don't think you can. <laughs> yes. Thank you for saying that out loud. That's the name of the show. Exactly. You can make a living in the music industry, right? And you guys are, and you are in the music industry as a guitar. And I think that's another thing that people, um, you know, they don't understand maybe, um, is that as a guitar teacher, you are in the music industry, right? Okay. I mean, you're not up in front of, on a stage in front of thousands of people, but you are teaching someone how to become a musician that is going to go do that. And those people will never become that artist or musician with most of the time, I'll say, without having someone teach them how to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. you are part of, you are the foundation really of the music industry on the musician side of things right mm -hmm. um so definitely those things are uh, definitely a, a huge huge part of that so yeah and a lot of my favorite instructors are people that are not household names um you know like my uh teacher at berkeley bobby stanton he toured with uh, disney and shrek the musical right and made a mm -hmm. lot of money doing that you know there's mm -hmm. theater work there's you know TV and movies and all sorts of stuff, commercials, um, yeah. you know, the, uh -huh. the, it's a, it's a much smaller percentage of people making a living in music that are up on stage in front of that, that are on the CDs and on radio and on TV right. that as you see as the artist, that is actually the, I would say the, the minority of people making a living in music are the people that are, that you know, as the artist, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's everyone it's the, it's the musicians, it's the utility players that play behind you as an artist. And it's the people that are playing in, in theater and on musicals and running sound and all that other stuff that are the ones, that's where the majority of people make their living yeah. is doing those types of gigs as well, or instead of, I would say, um, for the most part. So, yeah. And you, you can be creative as well. I mean, I once made a thousand dollars 
from a Lutheran church for just taking some old Martin Luther hymns and turning them into arrangements for a small band. You know, so, I mean, you can just think outside of the box and you can, you can do all sorts of stuff playing in nursing homes, for example, that that's something that you can do during the day. Sure. And it's all, it's all relevant. It's all part of being part of the music business. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, well, you're just doing that. That's just a little side thing. Well, no, it's, it's hundreds of side things. (laughs) Really? Right. Mm -hmm. That, and that's where, and as long, and I always say, as long as you are, as long as you are um, able to pay your bills and support a family, if you have one, mm-hmm. if you can do those two things while making music in some in some form or multiple ways of, of music, then you're being successful. Right. Right. And then that's, and that's making a living in the music industry. So, and you are doing it very, very well. And, Man, I appreciate your time. Uh, we could sit and talk for a couple more hours. I would <laughs> got lots and lots of questions for you, but I know you got some other stuff to do. So, um, man, just thank you so much for doing this. It's such a cool perspective. We have not had this on the show before now, so this is really good to hear for for uh, the audience to hear this, and even for me to kind of get a new perspective on on a few things I had never really considered. Um, you know, again, forty plus years I've been doing music in some form or fashion. And since I was four years old now, and I'm still learning new stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I've learned stuff today. We're always learning stuff. So I think the takeaway for people is to go out and, and keep learning, keep finding ways to learn and improving on what you do, you know, and and keep fighting for what it is that you want to do in music, and you can be successful. Absolutely. Awesome. Man, Corey, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. And, um, uh, wish you all the success in the world and hopefully we'll get to meet in person someday we'll we'll ho- hopefully get together and hook up and get to know each other even better that sounds wonderful thank you so much yeah man have a great day you too bye all right guys there you have it i hope you had a great time listening to our conversation today i hope you take what we've talked about today and find ways to apply it to your career as well please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on And please share it with all of your friends so that we can continue to get this message out to everyone around the world. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consulting services via phone, Skype, Zoom, or FaceTime. Let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.